Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 25, and it's a special one. Some successful people have one career. Michelle Thompson has had at least five and still counting. Originally a professional musician, she is best known for her brief but high-profile spell as an MP representing the Scottish National Party. But Michelle has also made her mark as a senior IT executive at Standard Life and the Royal Bank of Scotland, and as a property entrepreneur. And now, together with former SNP colleague Roger Mullin, she's leading a consultancy called Momentous Change, which, among other things, has been working on the establishment of the new Scottish Stock Exchange. This is a longer interview than normal, with good reason. Michelle is candid about the police investigation into her solicitor that led to the SNP removing the party whip from her, although she is now a member of the party again. And the childhood rape that led to a moving speech in the House of Commons. And there is a lot more to Michelle than the media headlines that have sometimes misrepresented her. Her energy, humour and positive attitude shine through. I interviewed Michelle at the home in Edinburgh she shares with a highly musical family, just like her. The keen-eared amongst you may spot a brief cameo appearance from her son Max whistling in the kitchen. And before we settled down for our discussion, Michelle gave me a wonderful mini-recital on her piano. This is her play. Michelle Thompson. Lovely to meet up with you. Um, We've a lot of ground to cover, so as we've started with some music, why don't we begin with that on the question front as well. Okay. Among many other things, you're a professional musician, so how did you first become aware that you had a particular passion and talent for music? Uh, My father sent me to piano lessons when I was in primary school. I was probably about eight, I would say, and it seemed to me to be the most natural thing in the world both to spend my time, I never objected to practising like some children will, and I really genuinely enjoyed it. And then I started playing the clarinet when I was in primary seven, so that was about age 12, and it just became part of my life. Were were your parents musical? Uh, No. (laughs) My dad plays the piano a little, my mother didn't at all. It just seemed to me to be a natural way to spend my time. Right. Well, uh... Prior to the beginning of this conversation, we've had a lovely little musical <laughs> interlude with some Brahms and some uh, Bach and yes. some jazz. So what kind of music do you really enjoy listening to these ah, days? Ah, well, uh, I'm afraid I just cut straight to Mahler symphonies uh, nowadays or uh, Shostakovich. I'm very keen on, probably the last thing I listened to was... Uh, Alexander Nevsky by Prokofiev that will be known to some of your listeners but to be honest I've got quite eclectic taste in music I can you know if I looked at my iPhone just now you would see that I've listened to a mixture of the things I've mentioned but also uh, Adele uh, also Deep Purple uh, I could listen <laughs> to pop music water. oh yes <laughs> I can't play that in the guitar properly by the way like most kind of young kids can uh, but yeah I've got very eclectic taste and to me all music is relevant I don't attach any snobbery to at all. So uh, music was obviously a, a big influence in yeah. your youth. We're going to come back to that okay. a little later on when uh-huh. your career kicks off. But um, could you start by telling us a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up, and what family life was like? I grew up in a, a small town outside Glasgow called Bearsden with my mother and father and two elder brothers. 
I think it was probably a fairly quiet upbringing. You know, we walked to school. I had a small group of friends. I did my music, although I must admit, even at an early age, when I was in primary school, I was quite interested in politics. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, sort of slightly odd, I think, (laughs) that people can hear me saying, but uh, Mm. I was interested in that. What sort of political persuasion did you have? uh, I didn't have a political persuasion. I think what I mean by that was that I would ask questions that other children didn't ask. Mm -hmm. Like, I did, uh, um, I questioned the existence of God, for example, where most people, most children at the age of 10, for example, wouldn't necessarily seek to question those things. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Uh, and I, if somebody said that this is this and this is the way it is and will always be, I was a kid that always wanted to know why. Mm-hmm. How do we know that was true? So I think it was more challenging things necessarily. So you were the kid in the classroom, the teacher was, oh no, here she goes, she's got a hand up. Oh, undeniably. I'm sure I was, I'm sure I was. From school you moved on to the the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. Was music at that point the only thing that you really wanted to do? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I considered doing other things. I was quite interested in uh, history and in English literature and in law, but... I felt that music was very good for me at that time. I had very high energy and uh, making sense of music. Most people don't understand. They, they, they think it's kind of like, darling, I feel a symphony coming on and it's all artistry. Hmm. No, there's huge elements of music that are deeply functional. You cannot play pieces of music unless you're playing the right notes in the right place at the right time. Uh, and in a certain way, depending on your instrument. And to make sense in a technical sense of music, and then by doing that, allowing allowing the artistic element to be overlayered over the top of that, seemed to work for me very well at that time, because you need to be focused and diligent and quiet to enable that. So I ended up going for music on the basis that a degree is a degree mm-hmm. is a degree. And we hear much more of that nowadays where people talk about so-called portfolio careers. People are much more comfortable with the idea and the concept, well, I studied hieroglyphics, for example, and then I've ended up doing this. I think I always felt comfortable with that. I loved music. I continue to love music with a passion, but I never necessarily saw that I would spend all of my life okay. only ever doing yeah. music. You know, so. But after graduating, you 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 did work yes. as a professional musician for a number <laughs> yes, of years. Yes, I did. What yeah. What was that period of life like? Oh, it was it was amazing. I mean, I, I did as many in, uh, musicians will do uh, some what's called peripatetic teaching in schools. I worked as an accompanist. Uh, I became a composer in residence at a theatre. And that was just amazing, because not only did we have the theatre and the rep company who did a performance every month, we also had like a Gilbert and Sullivan Society, we had a youth theatre, we ran a recording studio, we trained actors and actresses in various things. Uh, so it was a fascinating time. Altogether, um, it was the most fascinating of times. The thing about music is... There's a saying, you're only as good as your last gig. Many professions, sort of learned professions, for example, you can, in effect, dine out in something that you've developed many years before that you're considered to be at the forefront of your knowledge. Whereas a musician, 
you have to be able to deliver on that night, mm. on that afternoon, at that time. It's very skills-based, and you're judged for every performance you do. I felt that that was very liberating. I think living your life as though you're only as good as your last gig is a very powerful <laughs> way of living your life. It keeps you fresh. It keeps you working hard, you know, uh, and I think, I think it's a sensible way to live. Mm. And I, I did that for probably about five or, or six years, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had no other life whatsoever apart from music, 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 music all of the time, but I loved it. It sounds similar in some ways to being a politician, but we'll come on to that later <laughs> All on. consuming, yes. Yeah, yeah. Then you took what seems to me like a really weird left field turn, yeah. but I'm sure there's, there's solid reasons behind it, because you you completed a diploma in information technology and you joined Standard Life yeah. um, and rose up through the ranks in a series of, of roles there, primarily in IT change management. So what? <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I, I can understand why you say that. Well, when I was working in the theatre, it was the very early days of uh, equipment that enabled you to record and manipulate sounds, synthesizers and so on, and clipping sounds. I mean, that's commonplace now, but at the time it was, it was relatively new. And having done a very traditional, classically-based music degree... I was amazed at how how IT had started to permeate every single facet of our lives. And I quite quickly found out when I was in this theatre that it was much quicker to create music uh, using this kind of technology rather than the old-fashioned way of actually sitting down with a piece of manuscript and writing out the dots and getting acoustic musicians. I could knock stuff off the rep company in no time at all, given that they had a show um, every single month. And I became very interested in IT as a result how, you know, here's me, a musician, and it was, it was kind of invading my life as well. I also have a brother who's very clever. At that point was an actuary in standard life and I must admit I mean it's we laugh about it now but he was an elder brother and he would sort of kind of make little slightly disparaging comments about well, music as though to be honest music was something for girls <laughs> this is what this was my take at the time and we laugh about it now and I kind of thought no I, I'm going to go and do something so completely different because I'm a great believer this idea people get, get kind of foisted in the idea oh they're left brain or they're right brained I don't agree with that. I think we have a capacity to learn in a whole range of different areas if we work at it and if we put our mind to it. And I decided maybe I had something to prove. So I went off and did this diploma. I mean, it was quite early days. There weren't many people, you know, looking at things like artificial intelligence as well as uh, programming, which was much more sort of common. And again, I really enjoyed that because it was something for which I had no demonstrable competence whatsoever therefore it made, I know it sounds mad but therefore it made it appealing right. to me yeah. that yeah. actively appealed to me and then bearing in mind I said my, my brother was an actuary at Standard Life he actually bet me a fiver I couldn't get a job as a trainee computer programmer wow. so of course I had to apply for a job I was probably in my uh, mid-twenties at this point as a computer programmer yeah. and then of course 
I mean, joking apart, I had many really very happy years at Standard Life. I mm. loved working there. I did some programming. Did he pay you your fiver, by the way? Of course he paid me and your fiver. And <laughs> did you get a chance to, in your change management programmes, to move him around? Get your own <laughs> no, no, I definitely... I de- he <laughs> carried on uh, being a very, very good actuary and the numbers, the maths was always uh, his thing. But, I, I, you know, I worked my way through various roles, computer programmer, uh, systems analysis... A project manager, then kind of program manager, and work mm. my way through. And of course, many of them were specifically IT change management programs, but then into more general business one as well, much much bigger and larger programs like to do with the demutualisation program that Standard Life went through, some of their uh, stakeholder pensions and so on. Um, but I, I was there for many years and was very happy. It was a very happy time mm. in my life. I must admit. So I don't regret making the change. Right. That's it. Well, and then in fact, then you moved on to to RBS, didn't you? And you worked there during the, the era of Fred the Shred. What was that like? That was completely different. Uh, the culture was quite remarkable. Now, bearing in mind, I was nowhere near some of the kind of traditional banking functions. I wasn't near the retail side or near the investor side or anything. I was in an area, again, aligned initially to the IT department to do with their kind of spend, their investment spend in IT, and then a more kind of uh, general role. But all the same, the culture, you literally could taste the difference compared to standard life in the way people went about their business the fear that was in the atmosphere it was a very bullying culture Mm -hmm. people either bullied or were bullied and so you had quite incident high incidents of sick leave and so Mm. on it was a very very unhappy place I felt and I actually only stayed there for a couple of years and then I too left uh, and the, the time when I left was after all the issues with Lehman Brothers and the crisis of 2008. But it was before the issues that RBS had themselves came to the mm. public forum. I mean, I at that point knew nothing of that. Yeah. It seemed to be a very successful company, but I just knew I didn't feel comfortable there. Mm. And it was fundamentally about the business culture. And yeah. I kind of listened to my instinct and left roughly uh, two years later. And, your, and your instinct was to take another leap in another direction again and, yeah. and actually set up your own business in, in property. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> and now for something completely <laughs> different. Following the mantra of what I was saying before, I mean, by, by the time I left, uh, you could see that there was a crisis. And going back to my point about one, you're only as good as your last gig, and to keep testing yourself all of the time. The fact that I clearly had no demonstrable knowledge or competence in property whatsoever didn't seem to be a worry for me. Now, I was always interested uh, in property. I used to walk to primary school and I used to look at houses and think, oh, I quite like that one. Why do I like that? And I, I find, I think houses, you know, they literally depict how we choose to live, and I find them fascinating. Neighbourhoods, societies, they're fascinating. And so I set up this uh, company called Your Property Shop. We did a mixture of things. We we, uh, 
bought some properties, we did them up and we sold them, we undertook refurbishments on behalf of other people. Bearing in mind I had pretty strong project management skills, we did some property management for people, we bought some property ourselves. It was quite a mixed bag, hence the idea of your property shop, that there was various different things you could purchase from that company. We'll come back to the property stuff later okay. on because there's a, a later chapter okay. you're during your <laughs> political career. Um, but also at this time of uh, economic upheaval with the recession, there was a, a kind of a air of change in Scotland. The, yeah. the referendum was around the corner. And um, you actually took on an additional role as a, a founding board member for Business for Scotland, which was promoting independence to Scottish yeah. SMEs. Have you always been a, a strong believer in independence? And, and what prompted you to take on that responsibility? Yes, I have. I would use the term self-determination rather than independence. I have all of my life struggled to work out why some people believe that Scotland, uniquely of any state in the world, is the only one that won't take accountability and responsibility for creating its own future. So it was a fairly kind of logical bent rather than some people believe that it's a nationalistic bent. For me, it never was. Uh, my mother was from uh, Surrey. She grew up in Reading, so that makes me half English. So it was certainly never a, an anti-something. It was always about uh, the way you would choose to live. So mm -hmm. to me, it always seemed the natural way of being. And I used to use the example at the time that people in business understand that shorter lines of governance and control usually lead to better business outcomes. And we've seen that repeated a million times. And I thought, well, for me, that, that was similar to Scotland. During the independence debate, there were many people, the media, some large corporates, were quite rightly expressing that there were risks with Including standard life. You're indeed, uh, indeed. Although, actually, what I would say with standard life simply called it out in a risk register and I fully expect them to do that because they're a very good company, every company to do that, mm -hmm. as much so that they will currently have a hard Brexit and indeed Brexit on their risk mm -hmm. register as well because they're scanning the horizon. So, you know, I had no issue with that. So to call it out as a potential risk, I had no issue with. But mm -hmm. at the same time, there seemed to be little dialogue about opportunity mm -hmm. and equally well I wanted to talk about the opportunity if you had paid for the media advertising for all the talk and focus on Scotland during that period of time you literally would have spent billions people were interested ah Scotland that's that place that's famous for its universities or its food and drink mm. <coughs> excuse me or its music a whole range of things and all this activity and energy was being directed at Scotland that's fantastic mm -hmm. would we not want that all of the time well mm -hmm. of course we would so I decided I had to get involved. I felt I had a slightly unusual voice because there weren't all that many women from my background, from corporate, into running their own business uh, of my age who were speaking out in quite the way I was doing. And I ended up doing a lot of media, Sky, BBC, ITV, uh, CNN, you name it, whether it was TV or radio, talking about it. And at that point, I wasn't really taking a political view. I was simply saying that there clearly are opportunities. 
uh, and it was a normal state uh, for a country to run its own affairs. So, uh, and I, to be so honest... So how did you feel when, when the campaign ultimately didn't succeed? Well, of well, course, like everybody, um, I was deeply disappointed. I felt it was an opportunity missed. But I also felt that myself that so committed that I had been to what I was trying to achieve that that was going to be part of my life here on in. And mm. indeed, it still is to mm. this day. Because to me, I still stand by what I say. It's a natural state of affairs. And if we carry on abrogating responsibility for creating our own future, we cannot then complain about mm-hmm. the outcome. Mm-hmm. And we're hearing quite a lot of that at the moment with Brexit. I sense that attitudes are changing a great deal. In 2015, you were elected MP for Edinburgh West. Yes. Uh-huh. For the Scottish National Party. And you were part of a, a large infl- influx of new... Scottish uh, National Party MPs who descended upon Westminster very colourfully and noisily at times, shaking things up a bit. And you, in particular, were quite high profile. So yeah. was that an exciting thing to be part of? Oh, of course it was. I mean, it's a huge honour and privilege to represent people. Uh, public service, some people underrate it. I do not. I think it is an honour. Uh, it's a responsibility and an honour and of course it was a bit like kind of going to Harry Potter's or Hogwarts you know I mean the quaint traditions that they Mm -hmm. have some of them to be honest are really rather bizarre and because there was so many new MPs all elected at the one time we didn't nobody really knew each other terribly well we had a lot of laughs and a lot of fun and of course it was extensive media interest as well Mm. Um, so it, it it was quite an adventure and was good fun, as well as being hard work, of course. There was a, a little bit of a, a bombshell um, in September 2015, so not long after you'd gone to yeah. Westminster, Police Scotland launched an inquiry into circumstances whereby your solicitor um, and uh, had been... I, I believe he was struck off, and so they were, they, were, yeah. they were investigating what was going on, and you and various other people that he'd been working with were affected by this. Um, you were forced to resign the SNP whip... But you remained in Westminster as, a, as an independent MP. You also lost your SNP membership as a result of, of this. What's your memory of, of the period now? It sounds like it must have been very oh. stressful after such an exciting move down to, to London. Well, uh, possibly the understatement of the century, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, my first kind of uh, um, like event with the media was when somebody, uh, in Castorfin actually... Uh, added me to a dating base, a data uh, website called Ashley Madison oh. uh, for married couples, apparently. <laughs> now, I knew nothing about this. I'd never heard of uh, Ashley Madison. And it was quite interesting how these things happen. Apparently, there were 32 million users of this database all over they were North America. Like, yes, yeah, they were yeah. hacked. And the data was put onto the, the dark web. And uh, the media, quite correctly, trolled through and came across this uh, email address, my SNP email address. <laughs> and then it was on the news. I mean, that was probably about two o'clock in the afternoon. Right. By six o'clock in the evening, my name, and incidentally only my name out of 32 million users, was on this saying, oh, Michelle Thompson's name. And I was like, what? I've never even heard of it. I mean, it's quite funny when you look back at mm. it, but it's, it was probably an early indication how these things can happen 
that of 32 million users, of which there were, of course, some legitimate names, mm. only one name appeared as though if you were going to do that, you, you would You'd use put an SNP your address. SNP. I mean, it's ridiculous, <laughs> but that was probably about the June. And then this event happened in September. And you're correct, it concerned a solicitor I had used probably about eight years before that, me and obviously lots of other this people as well. This is with your property shop? Yes, that's yeah. correct. And uh, the solicitor had been struck off and it caused a bit of a furore. And you're correct, I lost the whip. And so going from being on the front bench as a business spokesperson, I was kind of like Johnny No Mates, you know. I was mm. wandering mm. around the corridors of Westminster on my own and basically under a cloud, even although... Uh, you know, obviously natural justice, the concept that people are innocent until they're proven guilty. Um, for me, you know, I put out a statement after eight months saying, well, nobody's even come anywhere near me. I was kind of left in limbo. Uh, it was an extraordinarily difficult time. Yeah. It was really possibly the hardest time I've ever had in my life Uh it was not only hard for me, it was very hard for my family because then suddenly, you know, people are talking about you, you become the focus, you become the subject at kind of you mm. know, meetings mm. or dinner parties. Some people were reluctant to engage with me. Um, one of the, the worst things that happened, which was just a sort of wee local story, was the now local MSP for this area personally delivered leaflets with like, basically photographs of the media kind of front pages to my house, which I thought was quite unbelievable to personally deliver them. And my daughter in particular was just in floods of tears. Mm. Uh, that kind of small thing, that affected me uh, greatly. On the other hand, though, when, when you're in something like that, and it happens. I was fairly typical. I didn't know what to do. I was I was very scared. I was very upset. I was depressed and so on. You really only have one choice. And the choice you have is how you choose to respond once the dust mm-hmm. is settled. And I made a firm choice that I would respond by never missing a day's work whether mm-hmm. that was in Westminster or constituency surgeries, that um, I would work as hard as I possibly could as an MP, that I would be polite and respectful to uh, whoever it was, whether it was a lawyer, whether it was a media, whether it was to police Scotland, because in that you're going through a process, and it's very important for public confidence that people continue to have confidence in the process and to have quiet faith and trust that mm. all would be well. Mm. Now, I didn't know it was going to be probably over two years later, uh, but having made that choice, it did make things easier because then I just kind of got on with it and uh, I, w- I was very lucky. I had great support from my husband and family. And it's true what they say, you find out who your friends are. Mm. You know, mm. so people who perhaps had been attracted to me because I was you know, quite a public figure at that point, yeah. and then who kind of ditched me, you know. Right. And I, I bear them no ill will. That is, that is the way of it. That's what happens. But I, I now really clearly know who my friends are. And, mm. and indeed, mm. all in all, um, I regard it as more of a positive than a negative right, experience okay. yeah. because of what I learned. Right. And, 
you know, when you do, I mean, many people who will listen to this go through kind of so-called competence-based interviews, uh, and they say that the best prediction of future behaviour is how you've behaved in the past. Mm-hmm. And if you were to ask a question like to somebody, what would you do if this occurred? We would all like to think we would behave in a certain way. But the truth is, you never really know until something happens to you how you will choose to behave. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, but I do, I now know, and I think mm-hmm. it gave me huge uh, learning. Uh, and I genuinely am glad it's happened mm-hmm. because it forces you just to rethink a lot of stuff about what's really important, what's really valuable, who your friends are, what you stand for, and so on. So, mm-hmm. I'm out the other side. You are, but we'll come back to the con- yeah. conclusion of the of the police investigation later on, because mm. in the middle of this sort of really uh, difficult time for you, and perhaps triggered by all, everything that you were going through, you made a very brave decision, which was to step forward in the House of Commons and, and tell the, the Chamber about uh, an experience when you were only 14, when you were raped. Mm. Um, and the story of, of how you kind of arrived there is, is quite moving. Would you be able to... Talk us through well, that. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's all in the public record now. Um, I have a firm belief that if you're going to put yourself in the role uh, of elected office, you have a duty to give voice to other people. It's not actually just about the politics. It's to give voice to other people. And often that voice has to be those who are unable to make their voices heard. Now, the first thing I would say is people would often wonder, why on earth, when you were under that horrible situation, what on earth made you speak out at that time? I found out, because I had to uh, go and make a complaint to the police and it was all investigated and, and so on. I found out that apparently when you're under great Stress. Some other trauma has been going on in your life, where, whether an ears and dears dies or so on. That is often the time where these things that can happen in somebody's early life that have been suppressed for a large part of their life suddenly almost like burst out of them and it has to be said. And that was certainly the case with me. And I didn't know why it was at the time. It was actually the police that explained to me mm. that that was why it was, mm. because it was under such stress in other areas that it, it happened that way. And the, when the actual debate was taking place, I was always going to speak in the debate. And I woke, it was on a Thursday, and I woke up on the Sunday morning, and my husband always said to me, did you sleep well? And I said to him, I had this dream that I'm going to speak about this. And he said, what? <laughs> As you would. And I said, no, but I've had a dream about it. And... I spoke to a member of my staff who said, no, please, no. <laughs> and I mean, this is this was something I never mentioned. I told my husband when we got married, uh, I felt I had to. We never discussed it. I never discussed it with anybody mm. all of my life. Right. But clearly, now looking back, I had it had affected me greatly in ways that I hadn't been able to understand as a youngster mm. and only recently have come to understand as an adult. But I just felt so strongly that all I needed to do was tell my story. So I I wrote the speech the night before in my office and I invited my 
good friend and now business partner, uh, Roger Mullen, I said, could you come over to my office? I want to read you something. And we, we spent, you know, he spent hours in Westminster and he said, okay. And when he came into my office, I said, look, I can't, I need you to sit in this chair, but with your back to me. And he obviously, you know, I can see it in your face. I think this is a bit odd. And then I read him my speech and I read in my speech because I wanted to feel and catch the moment in my voice where there was a risk mm, that I mm. would cry. Yeah. And not that I'm afraid of crying, but I felt if I broke down giving mm. that speech, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to kind of reach people yeah. the way I was trying to. And so, I mean, Roger was a complete brick. You know, he was the only one that I knew I was going to give the speech. So... You know, some people, when they watched it, said, that was terrible. There was hardly anybody in the chamber. Mm-hmm. Well, to be quite frank, it's not the sort of thing you go around saying to people, oh, make sure you're in the chamber at whatever time. You yeah. just don't do that. It was mm-hmm. so private. And it seems almost, you know, it seems still a bit strange to me that I spoke about it and that there were probably thousands of people heard it live, and then I know it was replayed. Yeah, and, it had a big, you know, big impact on oh, it in the uh-huh. media. Um, but I'm I'm glad that I did it uh, because all I was required to do was to be honest. And at the time, it then of course opened a whole range of other things for me. It required me to process things that I had never done. Right. Uh, I now realise that there's certain facets of my personality that I never knew before as a direct consequence of mm. having to process from that. So again, that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. It was deeply uncomfortable at mm. the time, in a deeply uncomfortable point in my life. But I'm glad I did it. Right. You right. know, and if it helps, if it helps other people, then I'm eternally grateful. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I mean, uh, you must have been then relieved going back to the, the police investigation when that was all sort of came to uh, came to nothing after a couple of years, and you were exonerated. Uh, you know, that that chapter of your life was... <laughs> well, could... I know, and that's the funny thing, because the investigation wasn't into me, mm. it was into a solicitor I used eight years before mm. I was elected. Yes. And so some of the media reports mm. were just outrageous. And again, that is one other thing I've learned. Um, it's very, you know, some people get awfully wrapped up in their politics and they think if somebody has a different political view to them, then they shouldn't like them. Mm. No, in my experience, in my view, is people are people. Take them as you find them. You may disagree strongly in some cases with their political views, but that's okay because we all have difficult, uh, different political views. But how the media chooses to present things, particularly in the tabloid media, mm. uh, is really <laughs> it's quite something else. And I remember watching a TV programme at the time about some lady in our house whose house I'd never been in and who I'd never met. It was a half-hour TV programme. <laughs> so, of course, it came to, after two years, well, you know, no, no, no proceedings. And, and, of mm. course, I was never even actually interviewed under right. caution. Yeah. You know, so you can... My goodness. And, of course, it left some people... I think perhaps looking a little bit silly mm, mm-hmm. uh, as a result, having having kind of de- <laughs> declared I mean, that I was about... doomed, you know. How did you, do you feel about the way the, kind of the, the party kind of dropped you like a, a hot potato? Well, when I say that, I wouldn't just say the party. I think, um, I, I mean, it's on the public record that I don't think that the 
the, the SNP were correct in the way they behaved. And I've said all I'm going to say about that. The media certainly didn't behave terribly well mm. either. Um, and it's one of these things, rather than pushing out... Because it's done. Mm. It's done. Rather than pushing out and being angry about it, it has made me reflect that nothing is ever as it seems. When you read a story, whether it's about a politician or whether it's about somebody else in the media, particularly in the tabloids, my firm view is that probably only a fraction of what you're reading is 100% true. And that makes me sympathetic to anybody that is in that position, regardless of their politics. Mm -hmm. And again, in that respect... I'm glad that's happened because I've learned mm -hmm. something from that. I might not have known that before. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. So in a strange kind of way, I'm really glad I know that. And mm -hmm. as I say, it's done. Yeah. It's done. Yeah, yeah. And if anything, you know, experiences happen to people. Life is a funny way of happening to all of us. It's, it's inevitable. Uh, and really, if you can take the positive from something... Take the learning, painful though it may be, it will mm. stand you in good stead. Mm -hmm. That's the only approach we can take. Otherwise, we get eaten up by anger or bitterness, and that doesn't serve any of us. Mm -hmm. you know. And I made, again, a firm resolution not to let that happen to me. Mm. So it's done. And as you say, while you were serving as an independent MP, you, you worked very hard. You served mm -hmm. on a number of committees, and you... I had some memorable experiences during that time, locking horns with the likes of Sir Philip Green and Sports Direct. So what was that like? Oh, yeah, I mean, again, that goes back to the thing about it's these select committees, uh, both in Holyrood and in Westminster, are very powerful. And they actually do a very good job. And I was very lucky that I was on the Business Select Committee. It had an excellent chair, Labour MP, and the, the MPs on that committee worked very well together to try and get good outcomes. And that's exactly as it should be. I think people should leave their party politics at mm. the door. It doesn't always happen, of course. And with the Philip Green thing, um, the, the committee had asked me to open on the questioning. And Sir Philip Green turned up with literally an army of, of advisors. And they, they all had stacks of folders around the numbers and their books and all the rest of it. And I decided to go in and ask questions about the culture, about the people, about his organisation. And it's funny, they say that no experience in your life is ever wasted. And going back to probably the start of this interview, I was a graduate of the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. I understood how drama can be created by leaving sufficiently long pauses to get people feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> and I must admit, I deliberately chose to do that in my questioning of Sir Philip Green when asking him about the people, absolutely looking him in the eye. Mm. And I know I could feel, and the people in the room, all the media were there, lots of people from the public, lots of advisors, they could sense, they could feel his discomfort and as mm. could I. And I think the inquiry, I mean, eventually we did, of course, get a good outcome in that he was forced by public opinion that had been triggered by the select committee and loads of other people, obviously loads of people put in some really sterling efforts to try and get a good outcome. But people did get more money back as a result. That was fantastic. To play a tiny part in that was fantastic. 
And then, of course, uh, Theresa May called her snap election just to try and strengthen <laughs> yes, her position. I, know. I, don't take, <laughs> I don't take that personally. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but no, that was oh, the end of your, your time well, at Westminster. Because well, you, that you was it. Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh-huh. So, uh, two years. So how, how did that, that feel to... Well, again, it's about making the right decision. Um, I could have chosen to stand as an independent. I chose not to. Um, because at that point, I just felt that the way I chose to respond in circumstances that I couldn't control uh, should be appropriate. Mm. And again, whilst do I have some regrets? Well, yes, of course I do. Uh, I couldn't possibly say I don't, but there was so much at that time, but then there's so much in people's lives, sometimes you've just got to roll with it and you can't control events. Mm. You can just control your response, so... That was that, yeah. and it was on to the next thing. The next thing, the next uh, chapter in your portfolio career, <laughs> yes. and this was teaming up with Roger Mullin, yes, your, uh-huh. your former colleague who you mentioned earlier on, to set up a consultancy called uh, Momentous mm-hmm. Change. Yeah. So what's the thinking behind that? Right, well, we say Momentous Change, making change momentous. Now, going back to you know, all my time at Standard Life and in RBS, um, change is something that's oft talked about and there's lots and lots of consultancy companies around change and particularly helping drive change in organisations but we've got a pretty unique skill set. Roger Mullen, Professor Roger Mullen is an academic and has conducted roughly I'm guessing about 29 international assignments for the likes of the World Bank, United Nations and so on. I mean he really has a spectacular brain and he's an academic I've got a long hinterland in change in corporate, plus both of us, this political experience. So we try and do projects that will drive real, meaningful, impactful change to society, not just in organisations. So we did some work, we did some research and published it into Brexit and uh, Scottish business. And we it was quite qualitative. We interviewed probably about 240 senior business leaders in Scotland and then published it. We then did some research into the feasibility of setting up a a stock exchange for Scotland. Now, that is an ambitious, audacious project. Mm. It's exactly the sort of thing I was making the point when you talked about the independence referendum. We we have to be ambitious. Mm. We have Mm. to be audacious. We have to be saying, not instead of, why should we do this? Why shouldn't we? Yes, so that yes. was a fantastic project to support. I actually and interviewed Thomas Carruthers, CEO, course, back yeah. in the spring for the, the for this series. How how is how are things progressing? Thomas Carruthers is a remarkable man. I have huge respect for what he's trying to do. The project is going very well. They're, they are now ensconced in their head office in 39 George Street. They're taking on staff at a rate of knots. Um, they have got a tie-up with uh, the Euronext and associated groups who provide the infrastructure for stock exchanges for London, Brussels, Amsterdam, Paris... Oslo, you know, a whole range of exchanges. And this will provide the infrastructure for the Scottish Stock Exchange. And it's planned to be, uh, it's focused heavily on what's called impact. In other words, the kind of virtuous cycle of business that businesses are not having a negative, indeed a positive impact in in what they're doing in society. Obviously, climate change 
uh, is a huge concern at the moment. And the alignment to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, uh, it's important to have that as a North Star as well. So it's a fantastically ambitious project. And my belief is that uh, they're aiming for launch by the end of this year. And now we're on to the piece of research we're undertaking at the moment is with Scottish Business Network to uh, undertake a piece of research in partnership with them around the Scottish diaspora. We know that there are Scots in every corner of the earth, but we don't have a clear view of what all those people who either born, lived, studied, married into, descendant of, or just simply have a huge warmth to Scotland, what they feel about Scotland, how they are able to trade with Scotland, and how people in Scotland are how able to trade by helping use the support of the diaspora. Now, this is something that's been done extraordinarily well, by the Irish. I mean, they are the world leaders. And again, I kind of feel that Scotland, it's time to get on board and use our the warmth of our diaspora around the world to make a difference, to make a difference to their own businesses and thereby make a difference to other countries and make a difference within Scotland mm. as well. So momentous change is all about doing the type of projects that mm. really make a difference, mm. using our to be honest, pretty unique skill set. And of course, it's no longer just the two of us. We've got uh, academic advisors and business advisors and so on. And we'll pick up and run with projects that really have value and meaning, regardless of what sector they're in. Will we always run the business? Do I see that this is the end of my business career with momentous change? Not necessarily. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it could be I do other stuff as well you never know yeah. you never know well that's why, why I was asking about your long term ambitions <laughs> because it seems to me in about three or four years time you'll be due to to make another change I mean what, what, what next plumber accountant farmer <laughs> well you know we need more plumbers don't we uh, no I don't think I'm going to be a plumber I suppose the interesting thing for me is that actually when you look back at it, although it ostensibly looks like there have been significant radical shifts, actually there are a number of areas that I am passionate about, that I've always been passionate about and will continue to be. And they are these three areas. One, Scotland, and we can see the evidence of that. Two is music. And three is young people. Uh, I was honoured to be nominated for a Director of the Year by the IOD last year for the work I do mentoring young women. Now, I've always done that, probably for 20 years. I've never publicised it. I've never taken any payment for it. And if people say, well, what can I give you in return? I say, when you get to my age or younger, make sure you do the same thing. So whatever I do, I want it to be around these three themes that I've been passionate about all of my life. Okay. So there could well be other things I do. I'm yeah. very committed to momentous change at the moment. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And Roger and I work very well together. Uh, I'm very lucky to have such a, a strong and um, experienced business partner as Roger. Um, but if I do do anything else, it'll be around Scotland, music or young people. Conductor of the Scottish Youth Orchestra, perhaps. <laughs> well, I'm afraid, you know, uh, conducting is a highly skilled thing. You know, I, I'm a good generalist in music, but that's mm. all. That's all. So I'm certainly not going to get ideas in, in that direction. And who knows? But life is for living. And I, I think I used to have in my LinkedIn profile for some time, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, why are you doing it? 
And I can quite honestly say that everything I've done, I've been passionate about. I've done to the best of my ability and I have grown and learned a great deal. And really, can we ask for anything more than that? Michelle Thompson, that is a fantastic way to end a really interesting interview. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks and Michelle is going to play us out. Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.